Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. And there's Dave. He's the producer of this podcast. Lots of people like him, but I think he's a little too quiet. What are you hiding, Dave? Oh, over there, it's Josh. Everyone says he's the intellectual of the bunch. But how intellectual can you be if you wear sweatpants for 47 straight days and half your meals consist of instant macaroni and cheese and packaged applesauce? And then there's me, Jason. I got a lady pregnant once. <laughs> With the Vitalonis. Yeah, yeah. So what is, what is happening there? Jason is recreating, sort of, the narration from our film that we're about to talk about. We are talking about the awesome movie year of 1953 in this season, and here we are at the Venice Film Festival winner or co-winner, actually, which is Federico Fellini's Ivitaloni, um, which translates to many, many different things. It's a, basically a slang term in Italy for something along the lines of the layabouts or the slackers or, or that, that sort of thing. And uh, Jason is sort of embodying the narration in this film about these five young gentlemen who are uh, aimless in their lives here in this small Italian town. You know, Josh, other than the fact that it's not the 1950s and we're not in a small Italian town, we're not that far from the Vitaloni. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like, like uh, on Letterboxd, Dave expressed a similar sentiment here. But I don't know if I really want to be associated with these guys. And uh, maybe, Jason, you and I are closer to them than, than married Dave is. But um, <laughs> I, I, suppose, I suppose I'll have to own up to it. <laughs> That's the first step, Josh, <laughs> admitting that you're yeah, a Vito Loni. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, Federico Fellini. This was, I, I wouldn't say this was a breakthrough. This is, again, like, other foreign films that we've talked about in this season in the 1950s, it took a longer time, a much longer time for films to sort of permeate the globe. So by the time this movie made it to the U.S., it was alongside or even later than his next film, La Strada, which was a sort of bigger breakthrough for him. But this was certainly another movie to push him more into the international scene. I think, Josh, it was a big deal for him in Italy, because this was his second feature film that he directed, and the first one, The White Sheep, didn't do much. So it was huge for him to take a step forward and prove that he could make a successful film. Yes, and and then it, it had a success after that. And a lot of this, I think, is like packaged. You know, a lot of references to this that I found are more like, oh, Fellini, the director of this and this and this, and, and Evie Deloney is kind of included alongside a bunch of other things. But um, it was critically and, and commercially, I think, successful, as is often the case with these movies from this era. There's not a lot of uh, info that I could find on how well it did at the box office, especially here in the US. But, um, and of course, it's a limited release when it gets here. But of course, it did at the Venice Film Festival win, and this was a very strange year, at Venice, the jury decided to not give out the Golden Lion, which is this typical top prize at the festival, and instead give out only the Silver Lion, typically, which is the second prize, and give that to six films. 
So Evie Deloney was the co-winner alongside five other films, uh, some of which I'm not really familiar with. Uh, Therese Racan, which is a French film from the director Marcel Carnet. Uh, so, Josh, there was Evie Teloni. Yes, thank and you. Deris Rican. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to do some weird voices here. All, all sorts of uh, foreign accents, Jason, that you can do. Uh, the other the other major, major film that when we were planning this season, I thought maybe we would put in this slot is Kenji Mizuguchi's Ugetsu, which is a very, very famous Japanese film. But, of course, we talked about Jason's favorite movie, Tokyo Story, in an earlier episode. So I have figured mix it up a bit and not do two Japanese films. But that was one of the winners. Uh, a Soviet film called Sadko by Alexander Ptushko. And two American films, John Huston's Moulin Rouge, which is not a John Huston film that I'm familiar with. And an independent film called Little Fugitive from three directors, Ray Ashley, Morris Engel, and Ruth Orkin, which looked like it was kind of an interesting, I mean, a really true independent film in 1953 in the US is pretty rare. So um, mm. that, that looked like an intriguing film, but... Well, tell me again the name of that one, Josh. It is called Little Fugitive. And it's an American film, so Little Fugitive. <laughs> Thank you, Jason's excellent American accent <laughs> that he has going on there. <laughs> nice work, buddy. Thanks, Josh. Um, and of course, reflecting the long process of this being released in various other countries, in 1954, it was ranked the number six best movie of the year from Jason's favorite publication, Cahiers du Cinéma, in France. And in 1958, it was nominated for an Oscar for best original screenplay. So yeah. a long time to sort of permeate the global cinema. And scene. then never to be heard from again, Federico Fellini just disappeared until being revived by awesome movie year how generous <laughs> yeah. of us to do that isn't it what one day we'll talk about a film that no one's ever heard of called eight and a half and <laughs> maybe la strada and we'll just keep going yes so. exactly we're gonna bring fellini back to the masses so uh this movie was in terms of english language reviews it was again a sort of long process um we can start, however, with a critic who actually did see it at the Venice Film Festival, Campbell Dixon in the London Daily Telegraph, who saw it there and reviewed it both in 1953 and then again in 1956 when it opened in London. He said, like most continental directors, Federico Fellini has a sharp eye for the social scene. But for once, there is no propaganda. Its chief characters are five deplorable playboys content to dream of romantic conquests and big deals, and meantime scrounge the price of cigarettes, billiards, and movies from an indulgent mother, sister, or aunt. The mood is not exactly satiric, nor do the moments of unhappiness go deeper than pathos and frustration. For all that, it is a brilliantly observed and at times oddly touching study of a rootless generation wandering without hope or purpose in Italy's wasteland. And thankfully, uh, these type of bums and slackers have all been cleaned up. There's no no more people like this no. uh, around anywhere. But actually, that was one of the things I liked about it, because, you know, I like these type of movies about hanging out and friends and, you know, this kind of uh, uh, generational kind of like divide. And we're just we're just living life, man, you know. So to see one of them all the way back from 53 is pretty cool, because most that we associate with are like, 
from the 90s forward, I'd say. Right, exactly. And this is an influence, I think, on a lot of those. And I don't know, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just, I guess, prejudiced against Fellini. I don't know if that's the right word, but having seen only uh, La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half, which are these big, sprawling art movies, it was sort of surprising to me to see this small scale, just sort of character driven drama. Not that it isn't artistic, but it's much, it's less ambitious, which is not a bad thing, I don't think. Well, again, you know, we covered like, for instance, Heart Eight, right? And uh, you would say that's definitely the smallest Paul Thomas Anderson film, I would think, except maybe Punch Drunk Love in there. Um, so, yeah, it's nice to um, kind of mix it up every now and again, Josh. Right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, another thing mentioned here that that Campbell Dixon mentions, and I think this is relevant also to Tokyo Story, is that this is really not that long after World War II. And Italy and Japan, these are countries where they lost the war. And the generation that kind of comes afterwards is really dealing with massive social upheaval. And so I think even though, yeah, these guys are kind of losers a bit and they're lazy in their way but it's also like they're they're facing a country that is undergoing this massive change yeah that's a good point and we kind of dealt with that with tokyo's story as well yes exactly so um moving forward then this movie opened in new york city in 1956 and bosley crowther in the new york times said a presumably irritating problem in post-war italy that of the lazy, parasitic sons of good middle-class families, is explored by Federico Fellini with a sense of its tragicomic character in this Italian film, Vitaloni. If director Fellini makes it seem a little more urgent than it is, you may charge that off to his volatile disposition and a desire to make a stinging film. For he does certainly take a vigorous whiplash to the breed of overgrown and oversexed young men who hang around their local pool rooms and shun work as though it were a foul disease. He ridicules them with all the candor of his sharp neorealist style, revealing their self-admiration to be sadly immature and absurd. And without going into reasons for the slack state of these young men, he indicates that they are piteous and merit some sympathy, too. I didn't think, I mean, you know, a lot of this, as many Fellini movies are, is somewhat autobiographical, right? So... I didn't feel it was ridicule. I felt it was like, you know, this aimless, like how many of us aren't aimless in our young 20s? And especially, you know, like you had mentioned, like you just got out of uh, uh, the Mussolini era. I could you could, you know, the, the country can't be feeling too good about itself at this point in time. Right. Yeah. I think he's overstating the degree to which this film is criticizing or judging these guys. On the other hand, at least. um our main character or our seemingly main character, Fausto, who knocks up his friend's sister, doesn't seem to want to take any responsibility, is busy chasing other women the entire time. I, I don't know that this is a movie that is positive entirely about him. And certainly he's kind of a terrible guy. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, look, his friends come down on him a lot, right? Yeah. So I, th I think if anything, they do show that. But you bring up a point that is interesting to me because like, you know, when I was doing that little intro bit on us, right, that is from the movie where they're introing all the characters, yes. right? And they get to Fausto and the way that, you know, they've described one as like, you know, it's Alberto. He's a great singer. This is his big night of the year or whatever. Oh, Leopoldo. Ricardo the singer, I think, actually. Right. Okay. So, or uh, Leopoldo. He's the, he's the playwright, an intellectual, right? So they get to Fausto and they're like, he's our leader. 
the moral compass of our group. And then like, he doesn't lead them to ever do anything. And he's clearly not the moral compass. So like, I didn't take that as sarcasm, but I took that as something that just didn't play out at all in the movie. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could, I, I think I glossed over that when I was watching it, but I think you could take it also as, as that kind of criticism that we in the audience can see that this guy is no moral compass, but the characters perceive him that way, or they look up to him that way. And maybe part of the movie is them realizing that that's wrong. I mean, certainly Moraldo, who is the other kind of main character and is the brother of the woman that uh, Fausto knocks up and later marries. I think he, his arc through the movie is realizing like, this guy who's my best friend is not great. And maybe I don't want to be hanging around with him and these other people. And he's the only one who actually, you know, spoiler alert, gets out of the town at the end and goes on to potentially bigger things. You know, I agree with you on Fausto, but I don't think there was anything really wrong with any of these other guys. And that whole, like any of the criticism were like showing just how pathetic and sad these guys are. Like, you know, it's like the 50s, they're in their 20s, they live with their moms, like, come on, you know, like, what young people haven't done that? And sure, they're a bit aimless, but you expect at some point they'll get it together, right? Yeah, I agree that Fausto is definitely, I mean, in part because he's more or less the main character and we see a lot more of what he does, but he is certainly the one who exhibits the worst behavior. The rest of these guys, yeah, the worst you can say about them probably is that they are not trying very hard to find work, I think. Right, which is, you know, I'm still not trying very hard to find work. So, yeah, but you know. you're, no, you're not in your <laughs> 20s in Italy in 1953, so you got no excuse left. <laughs> yeah, you're right. What a referendum on it me. It is, really. That's what <laughs> Fellini was going for. I um, so in 1957, and I had a rough time finding some more reviews beyond those couple big ones, but... This movie did slowly get around the country. So in 1957, in the Richmond Times-Dispatch, we had a bylined review from KW. Who knows who that is? And KW said, For Italian film enthusiasts, Ivy Deloni is an absolute must. In fact, the movie is a must for anyone who appreciates the art of acting. Federico Fellini, the director of La Strada, does an even more masterful job of directing the, quote, big calves of this film, as the Italian name is literally translated. Although no doubt a great deal is lost for the audience through not understanding Italian, the excellent acting causes short captions to be nearly adequate. The scenes are contrasts of wild, reckless parties and dreary, depressing scenes. Music is at its best as a media of expression, and as in La Strada, the melodies are haunting. There is no moral. It is a slice of life in an Italian town. Real, intense, amusing, and sad. Yes, from um, from that's from uh, film critic K.W. Ketterico Wellini. Yeah, I tried. I tried. <laughs> These old newspapers byline so many things with initials, and sometimes I can figure out, but strangely, Googling K.W. movie critic Richmond Times Dispatch didn't get me an answer. <laughs> Josh, we appreciate your efforts you. here on Awesome Movie Year. Yeah, so this also, like I said, this reflects the fact that by the time this got to Richmond, that La Strada had already come out and was already well-known and was already acclaimed. And this this was sort of a, hey, remember, this guy also did this other movie that came out earlier. 
how exciting. I mean, even when we were in college and you had to like go to like midnight screenings or like secret, uh, you know, film society screenings of stuff that was always so exciting. And now we have everything at our fingertips and, um, and, you know, uh, not to be the get off my lawn guy, but Josh, we've lost something. We've all lost a bit of ourselves over this time. Yes, I suppose so. We, we did of course have the original get off my lawn guy in our wild one episode recently. So, um, you know, you're in good company there. Just saying, it's kind of cool. It was always kind of cool when you had to seek stuff like this. Out. Right. I, that's true. I mean, I think on the other hand, the fact that if you're interested in, in uh, you know, if you see, say, a film by an Italian director and you think, wow, what a great film. I'd like to see this director's other movies like they'll often be readily available. You don't have to wait however many years after seeing La Strada for uh, Evie Deloney to show up in your town or whatever. And so, you know, there's it's trade offs. Yeah, this is um, this is really gone into um, a state of society digression here. Yeah. So let's get back on track. Um, Jason, what was your history with Fellini films before this? Zero history, oh, Josh. Right. Major figure that I had actually never seen any films of shameful, like the Vitalonis themselves <laughs> that I had never seen eight and a half or La Strada. Um, I look forward to watching more of his work. Oh, that's good. So I'm only slightly less shameful than you, really. I have not seen La Strada. I have seen Eight and a Half, and I have seen La Dolce Vita, uh, both quite quite some time ago, and neither of which I liked, which was, of course, there's the shameful thing, these, these great towering, I mean, not only is Fellini this major figure, but those are probably his two most acclaimed films, and they're both very long and digressive and, and a bit pretentious, and I honestly found them both kind of boring. And so I was worried going into this movie, but I think the fact that it was, it's shorter, it's more contained, it's more small scale. Um, I like this more than both of those movies. So I'm, I'm open to, to more. I should at least see La Strada someday, I think. Yeah, Josh, maybe we'll all, we'll, we'll all watch it together. Maybe we will, but probably a bunch of Vitalonis on the couch. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that is, it's a, if the, if this was made slightly later, I guess maybe there wasn't a lot of home TV use in 1953 in Italy yet. But uh, a little bit later, I'm sure that's what these guys would be doing. I'm watching a rerun of uh, What's Happening, Ma. Come on, leave me alone. Yeah, very good. <laughs> Reruns of dancing again. Super accurate. <laughs> So, uh, Dave, how about you? Had you seen any Fellini films? I also had never seen any. I've always wanted to see Eight and a Half. I mean, I know a lot of the meta movies that I love are very influenced by it, um, but I'll get to it one of these days. Right. Yeah, if you did a, a Piecing It Together episode on Bardo from this year, Eight and a Half is like right at the top of the list for that one. Right. Speaking of uh, long digressive films. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and that's not necessarily like a positive reflection of Eight and a Half per se, um, or the way that, that Inyaritu uses that in, in Bardo, but it's certainly a major influence there. So now that we've established that we are all total dilettantes. Here, yeah. Woefully yes. <laughs> under, uh, 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 underqualified for this episode. Right. So. But Hey, that's a great thing too, about awesome movie year, right? We get to explore things that we're not familiar with and open up different areas of cinema for us and maybe for our listeners too, or maybe some listeners who think we're idiots because we haven't seen enough. Fellini uh, Josh, I again, go back to like when we were in our 67 season and there was all that French new wave stuff and, I was like, oh, here's something I missed. And now I could go watch like four, um, you know, Godard movies in a row. 
You remember the halcyon days of yes. quarantine, Josh. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, we have a little <laughs> more time to do things like that. But uh, there are a lot of Fellini movies. I mean, just watching this, I think on, on HBO Max or Criterion, it pops up with a bunch of other Fellini films that are readily available to watch. So Yeah, um, you, you mentioned a few, but you didn't mention Amicord, which is, I think, the other big one. Of, yeah, uh, and another group. one that I haven't seen. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why you didn't mention it. You didn't even know about it. Right, exactly. I have total lack of knowledge here. Anyway, um, you want to mention anything else about the background of this Fellini film? I felt it was strange when researching it um, because I mentioned the White Sheik, his first movie, and they were all just like there. I couldn't find enough information on it, like just going through our normal sources. Like, you know, you go to Wikipedia and they're like, it was such a failure. Fellini had trouble getting money again. No one wanted it to be called E. Vitaloni. Right. And it was like. But I couldn't find anything more about it. And obviously, I didn't have a chance to read like a Fellini biography. But what? Um, come on. I know that was that's on um, that's on me, Josh. But um, yeah, it was um, it was strange that 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 one movie in the 50s could have like really just derailed him had this not happened and whatnot. Um, and then the other thing that I think I wanted to mention was that Ennio Fleano and uh, Tullio Pinelli those are his co-writers on this and on many other uh, films. And those three just kind of use incidents from their life to build structure in this and uh, their other, you know, and like you said, La Dolce Vita, La Strada and Eight and a Half, stuff like that to kind of build out these movies. Right. And it definitely has that genuine feel that you can imagine some of the incidents from this movie are real things that, that Fellini or those co-writers had experienced or they're exaggerated versions of something that they really had happen in their lives because it feels it feels genuine i think that's one of the better qualities of the film yes so we'll come back then in a moment and talk more of our general thoughts on evie teloni Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1953, we are talking about Venice Film Festival co-winner, Ivi Teloni from Federico Fellini. And uh, Jason, the theme of this season has been that you hate movies. So (laughs) I'm glad to see that apparently you like this one. See, Josh, as you were saying, maybe this is an anathema to like typical structure and like plot moving stuff forward this is like um that reviewer said a slice of life more yes. vignette and everything and um what i needed was a good anti-serum from <laughs> classic structure of the the 50s but you know we go back and and we talk about these great directors of really the 60s and and i think fellini you know even took those next steps in the 60s and um, I, I do love a lot of that stuff. So this was this was a nice uh, respite from the drudgery you've been putting me through. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think despite what you're saying there, we have had a variety. And and of course, a movie that you hated, Tokyo Story, is also uh, anti-structure slice, slice of life story. So, you know, it varies. But but yeah, this is certainly not a Hollywood seeming movie in any way, even though this was a mainstream <laughs> film in Italy. And the stars of this movie, especially uh, Alberto Sordi, who we may not be all that familiar with, but were famous in Italy. And um, so this is the kind of movie that maybe Italian audiences were more used to than American audiences were. Well, yeah, I mean, I can only judge by what I see, Josh. So um, 
But I like the energy of this film. You know, there was good energy. There was good camaraderie. I felt the conflicts, uh, for the most part, were small, but like real. Like, I love the way the parents kind of treated the kids uh, with like, um, <laughs> like they were ashamed of them, but loved them. But, um, you know, were worried that how they were reflecting on them. And it, it just kind of worked better for me. And, and Tokyo's story, a lot of those themes came up too, but it, they didn't. Maybe I just needed the, this kind of Italian energy to it, Josh. Right. I mean, certainly to to use a bunch of stereotypes, Italians are a lot more demonstrative, perhaps, than Japanese people are. And so those emotions come across more clearly in this film. Yeah. and uh, But still in an honest way. And that's what I think I responded to here. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I think it seems very genuine because it is drawn in some part from the filmmaker's own life experiences. It definitely feels like a glimpse into Italian culture, the whole thing where it was a given that these people, not just because they were slackers and they didn't have jobs, but this is sort of like the the way that that life is in Italy, that these guys and and women, too, will live with their parents well into adulthood when Fausto is forced to marry Sandra, the woman that he gets pregnant. It is assumed and no one really objects that he will move in with her and her family who are wealthier than his family and the baby will be born and they'll all live there and maybe someday they'll move out and get their own place but it doesn't seem all that urgent even though they do want him to get a job well well the one who didn't assume it was fausto right he tried to leave and then his dad just smacked him around and got him back in that to that and he does get a job which of course he screws up um by hitting on uh, his boss's wife and uh the other Vitaloni, you know, hey, look, Leopoldo's writing. One of them's a singer. One of them's like an actor, right? Like they're trying, right? Is is this that different than something like Party Down, Josh? You know, other than the catering, right? Isn't this pretty much Party Down? <laughs> Party Down was the one that I was thinking of too. By the way. <laughs> I mean, the difference there is that those characters are in the actual geographical center of the artistic industry that they're trying to enter. These guys keep talking about traveling to Rome or traveling to Milan, but clearly their town, which I don't recall if we ever even find out what the town no, is, but wherever don't. their town is, it's it's a nowhere town, right? And when Fausto is panicking when he finds out that Sandra is pregnant and he's going to leave, he says, I'm going to go to Milan. Um, when they all talk about potentially going somewhere to make something of themselves, they're going to go to Rome, right? This This big time actor who comes to town to do some sort of little community theater performance. And Leopoldo is trying to get him to read his play and, and, and decide to put it on, you know, that's going to be in Rome or somewhere like that. It's not going to happen in their little town. Right. So you get these little uh, glimpses into each character. We start at this uh, beachy resort that, where they're crowning Miss Mermaid, right? Who yes. is Sandra, the, the woman who gets pregnant you know, we go to this wedding. Um, we have these guys pranking workers. We show some stuff with Fausto at work. And then I think um, the masquerade ball was probably the the most, um, you know, lively sequence of the bunch, probably maybe the best sequence of the movie, I'd say. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. And you see all the characters. I feel like one of the sort of difficulties I had with this movie was that it's it's a bit lopsided, is that it's about these five guys but it's mostly about Fausto. But then sometimes it's not about Fausto, but we don't get like we have some a, a brief 
part of the movie where it seems like it's more about Alberto, who is kind of depressed and he gets drunk too much. And then we just kind of leave that behind and we're back to Fausto and we're back yeah. to Moraldo. So I felt like it was a bit disjointed. I realized, like you were saying, Jason, it's supposed to be kind of vignettes, but it was a bit lumpy to me. And Alberto's story, he lives with his mom and his sister and his sister is uh, sleeping with a married man and he wants her to cut it off again, bringing shame to the family. There's no future here. And all he does is, you know, live there. He doesn't have a job. And then eventually the sister leaves and he tells um, he tells his mom he'll get a job. And, you know, it, it, you definitely have that rev the reverence for the mama, you yes. know, in the Italian culture. Josh, I have a question for you. We watch this. We watch Cinema Paradiso. Does every small town in Italy have a town simpleton? <laughs> yeah, I did think a lot of Cinema Paradiso, which I mean, maybe just because that's the one other Italian movie that we've talked about. But yeah, it does seem like, again, I'm sure this is genuine. But on the other hand, I feel like if you gave an AI the task of creating like Italian small town drama or whatever, there's a lot of elements here. The the adorable like child laborer kid who works at the, the the train station, like, oh, it's cute that this 12-year-old is up at three in the morning going to work. Josh, tell me about that relationship between Moraldo and the and the boy. I mean, it was a little weird. Like there's only like two or three scenes. I feel like there's one scene where Moraldo is, he's been out late with the boys and he's kind of introspective and a little drunk and the the kid is walking along the street and he's like, what are you doing up so late, kid? It's three in the morning. And the kid's like, no, I'm up early because I go to work. And they have a nice little talk. And then there's another scene between them later that did seem, I don't know, like there was something weird going on, but I don't think there's meant to be anything other than being friendly there. And then the kid kind of sees him off at the end of the movie when he's taking the train to leave town. And that's because the kid works at the train station. So I don't know. Did you feel like there was some inappropriateness going on there? I mean, I don't try to look into these things <laughs> like you do, Josh. I was setting you up for a, a real, a real easy softball there. But it was a, it was a strange relationship. I'll say that much. But maybe if we go on the level you're looking at, maybe this this child sees like, hey, he made it out, so can I one day. Yeah, and I do think only that, again, it's only like three scenes that you even see between those two characters. And I think the, the second one is they have some dialogue together where it's like weirdly intimate or friendly or whatever. And they're hanging out late at night at a train station. You know, right. we never really see Meraldo with a significant other. I'm just saying you could infer things if that was, you, you know. Right, I suppose. I mean, there's a much clearer incident of that kind of, you know, queer coded moment where the aging actor who comes to town that Leopoldo is trying to convince to put on his play and he kind of propositions Leopoldo. And that was clearly meant yes. to be that. So, right. you know, he's I, trying to bang him. That's yes. that's for sure. Yes, so. exactly. And Leopoldo freaks out and runs away. So, I mean, that's something that that is clearly Fellini's intent. I'm not sure, at least intention wise, that there's anything in the in the scene with the the train station kid. And that's fine. I was just asking yeah. if you right. if you got anything out of it. So, Fair enough. You know. Um, Ooh, where do we go from here? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I do think it's it's interesting that, like you said, we don't really see Moraldo. All these other characters are kind of chasing after the women. That that's one of the things that they're defined. I mean, Fausto is the 
the worst of them in that he's literally like playing footsie with a woman sitting next to him at the movie theater while his wife is sitting on the other side of him. But I mean, the rest of them too are are definitely like, that's what they're, they're after. Um, but Moraldo is not really focused on that. And maybe in part because he's meant to be the more, um, say not sane but mature yeah the more exactly he's meant to be the more mature one of these he is the moral center of the film i guess in uh even though we hear otherwise right even though fausto is described that way he is it's 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 really moral though so but yeah i mean i think that's that's part of it and i wonder if you know like we were talking about with cinema paradiso which has a similar arc where the main character is the one who gets out of the small town that no one ever really leaves um, and is in, based on the life of the director, Giuseppe Tornatore. I wonder if Fellini himself sees himself more in Moraldo because he presumably did, you know, he went on to become a film director. So um, that that's something that he had in his life. It's interesting that we're covering this now at the time of recording, going into the end of uh, 2022. Because, you know, there have been so many movies this year of auteur directors doing a movie about themselves and about their younger lives. Right. And I think a lot of European directors like Fellini or, you know, Francois Truffaut, who we've talked about, who like made an entire series of films that were based on basically his own life, um, have been doing this for decades. Right. Uh, Josh. Did you, uh, I found this to be interesting. You mentioned the actor Alberto Sordi, who played Alberto, being such a famous comedian um, that they had to shoot this film based around his schedule traveling from town to town with his variety show. So Fellini, with his crew, traveled across Italy and they would shoot different sequences depending on where they were um you know to match the movie but it was all based on having sorties availability yeah and i wonder if that's one of the reasons that we're not specified like what town this is because in fact it was shot in so many different towns it's just like an amalgamation of different small italian towns but i feel like it works i mean obviously we're not familiar with small italian towns or whatever and maybe people in italy would have realized oh this was clearly shot in like multiple places but to me it all felt like it was it was in the same area it felt like it all fit together and dave did you have any favorite moments from the film uh my favorite moment from the film was when they're at the bar and the the girl asks for a sandwich and the bartender just hands her a sandwich that's already made <laughs> that was great not even one sandwich like a whole yeah. plate of sandwiches and she just takes one well, that's at the masquerade but don't forget the rest of that where fausto's like you can't eat a ham sandwich. It's unbecoming of you, right? And then right. And that's his wife. And then yeah. Moraldo comes over and it's like, I'll dance with you. Let's eat our ham sandwiches, you know? Right. So. Yeah. Another another instance of Fausto being a dick. Um, but so my 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 question slash uh confusion about this film was who is the narrator? Oh, I don't know. That's um it's yeah. uh, supposed Maybe Moraldo, because we see him last, or I don't really know. Yeah, I wonder, because the narration is delivered as if it's from one of the Vidaloni, but it's not someone we ever seem to see on screen. He's always describing every one of the characters in third person. And I I wondered, you know, a lot of times in subtitled films, you don't necessarily get the, the sound and the cadence of the actor's voices so much that you can distinguish them. And I thought... 
oh, is this one of the actors? And I just didn't realize it. But in fact, the narrator is is uh, Ricardo Cuchola is not one of the actors who actually is on screen in the film. So maybe maybe Josh, it's you know like we we know Fellini kind of plays with you know surreal elements, shall we say, absurdist elements. So maybe this is just him his way of dropping us in with a you know disembodied voice, so to speak. Yeah, I think you're right, but it did throw me off at first because another thing was, and maybe this is just my failing, but I think it took me a while to be able to distinguish all the characters, especially- I can understand that. You know, especially the ones who have less of a focus than Moraldo and Fausto do. So I was not only trying to do that, but then kept thinking like, wait, there's a narrator. One of these guys is the narrator. I'm missing that. Who is that? Which one of these guys is it? And he does come back at the end. Yes. Right? Yeah. So- he comes back to show, uh, in a cool sequence where we just see all the Vita Lodi just sitting around doing nothing. And then you see Moraldo. But those shots were really slick move, movement shots moving from close to wides and, you know, showing them just in their rooms doing nothing. And then you that mimicked the kind of movement of the train as it was riding away. I thought that was really good. And that's when he comes back like, hey, remember me? I'm the one who told you the beginning. Anyway, here we are again. Okay, goodbye. I is he is he not narrating parts in the in, intermittently throughout the film in the middle? I feel like there was, but maybe I'm misremembering that. You could, I mean, that's that's the beauty of art, Josh. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and it, you know, it was interesting to me to learn that Alberto Sordi was the one who was the major like celebrity in Italy because his character is not. You know, again, there's a one sequence that's really focused on him, but then otherwise he's more of a background character. And maybe that had to do partially with his availability. But if I had had to guess who is the major famous figure in in Italy who is in this film, I would not have guessed that it was him. Right. So it's, you know, you kind of bring that up in that set sequences, that masquerade ball where he's in drag. And um, I uh, Fellini said of the word Vitaloni, it's, the unemployed of the middle class, mother's pets. They shine during the holiday season and waiting for it takes up the rest of the year. <laughs> right. And we definitely get that 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 kind of mama's boy thing there, especially with Alberto when he is is dressing up in drag and is, you know, just sort of reliant on that. And then it seems like he's when he's upset with his sister for going off with the married man, it's mostly because she's going to make mama cry. And that's not exactly well. I mean, there's. I think there's a few levels to that, not yeah. just making her cry. But Josh, before we rate this thing, I did want to uh, mention the actress who played uh, the shopkeep's wife, Lida Barova, uh, who has the distinction of being Joseph Goebbels' mistress. <laughs> yeah, that is a thing, certainly. And uh, you know, we we. Although we just mentioned how this this and Tokyo Story are post-war, I think it's easy to forget how close to World War II this period really was. I think so. You don't you got you get the feeling of it, but you don't see the remnants of it, right? So, but it's interesting. Like, uh, you know, you wonder today, like, hey, you're Goebbels' mistress. You're canceled, right? Like, she's not canceled for being. Ah, I'll just put Joseph Goebbels' mistress in this thing. So. I mean, he didn't cast Joseph Goebbels, so it's fine. <laughs> but I think he was dead at the time. Well, Josh, yeah, so. that's that's definitely the only impediment, right? <laughs> well, maybe Fellini would have rather have cast a dead Goebbels and reanimated him. All right, let's 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 let that. 
topic go, I think. And uh, <laughs> do we want to rate this out of, I don't know, five weird paper mache heads from the... Uh, five Vitaloni? Yeah, that's or what that. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. It gets three Vitaloni from me. I do like these types of movies. I thought this one uh, had its charm and whimsy. Three Vitaloni. I'm also going to give it three. I thought it was charming, but maybe a bit uneven and disjointed, but I enjoyed it. And certainly it brought me back around on Fellini, I guess I could say. So Dave, how do you rate this? I'm going three and a half Vitaloni. Uh, All right. It was a good time. It's a, a fun hangout. Yes, it is definitely a fun hangout movie. And uh, I think we'll maybe talk about some other hangout movies when we come back. Yes, and that is exactly what I'd like to do. Well, we'll do that. <laughs> When we talk about the legacy of Ivitaloni. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1953, we are talking about Venice Film Festival co winner Ivitaloni from Federico Fellini. And Jason, you seemed eager just now to talk about movies that may be influenced by this, other kind of hangout films? Are there ones you want to bring up? Well, I mean, I like so many of these, Josh. So I was going to see if, uh, I mean, look, there's there's total Scorsese all over this thing, right? From the one that we covered, Knocking on My Door, who's that Knocking on My Door, to Mean Streets, to even that sequence where we're introducing everyone is very Goodfellas-ish, right? So um, Goodfellas, not as much a hangout movie as the yeah. other two, but... Um, you kind of get that. I know often referenced are like uh, American Graffiti and uh, some of those 80s like uh, Brad Pack movies like St. Elmo's Fire or, or uh, you know, you could even go to Breakfast Club or something like that. Um, I don't know. You know, I always, you know, I feel like on this podcast, I'm always mentioning Dazed and Confused and I'm always mentioning Trees Lounge and they both kind of feel like they're in this wheelhouse to me, right? Yeah, I definitely thought of Dazed and Confused when I was watching this, and uh, and certainly American Graffiti as well. So um, I haven't seen St. Elmo's Fire, which is a big uh, sort of 80s touchstone, but I have never seen it. I'll throw a couple others out there. We covered Swingers, you know, that this definitely has that. Yeah. And I'd say Noah Baumbach's first movie, Kicking and Screaming, there's a lot of that in here. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And so I think this is something that, um, you know, good old Wikipedia, again, I think mentioned Diner as a possibility um and uh you know something that that has like permeated a lot of uh filmmaking and and of culture and everything and to the point where Barry Levinson supposedly said he had never seen Ivitaloni before making Diner but perhaps because so many other films had already been influenced by it that he didn't need to see it in order to be influenced by it do you guys, both of you, have any other favorite Hangout movies? I guess these are really coming-of-age Hangout movies that we're talking about, too. Right. I mean, I think in a way that's why something like Swingers that you mentioned is good, because these guys are, they're not high schoolers, right? They're not even college dudes. You know, Kicking and Screaming is guys who've just graduated from college. But these guys are a little older. At one point... Uh, when Fausto is getting all upset about his in-laws trying to control him, he says, you know, I'm not a child. I'm 30 years old. And for right. a second, I was like, he's 30 years old. Ooh, that's not good. I thought he was like 23. Right. So yeah. these guys are, are closer maybe to the swingers guys ages. And they're just they're really in this uh, sort of arrested development stage. Yeah. You know, Josh, I'm going to throw one other out there because, yes, it did have a wedding, but it was very of the culture 
of the neighborhood. And uh, it's one that I think one of the better movies we've covered is uh, True Love, Nancy Savoca's film. Right. Yeah, definitely. There's there's a lot of that. Uh, I mean, Italian American stuff. But, uh, you know, the culture, like you said, it, it, it carries over and there's there's a similarity to it. So I just recently watched uh, a Christmas movie called Feast of the Seven Fishes that is about uh, Italian Americans, uh, the Italian American community in the early 1980s in, in Pennsylvania. And there's definitely a lot of there's a lot of like generational co-living and these guys who just kind of knock around the little town and don't do much. So that's a underrated, maybe lesser known film in that. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm looking forward to watching that. I love movies like this. You know, uh, Dave. Any any favorites we didn't mention? I mean, you mentioned most of the ones that I had thought of. But one other one I was thinking of was Friday. Um, just you know, just guys with nothing else to do. You know. Yeah. Right. I think that is the thing is that these guys never seem to have any any schedules they're like no not only do they not have jobs but they don't seem to bother trying to have jobs yeah you know and that's just they they have all their time in the world to just walk around josh they have to get ready for the holidays yeah it's a big (laughs) it's a big process it's where they shine plan those costumes for the the carnival or whatever so um as we've said we're all kind of you know, Fellini dilettantes or whatever, but of course- Fellinisteens? There you go. That's a good one. That's a good one. But I mean, obviously he is one of the major world filmmakers. This is an early film of his and went on to make numerous classics like we've mentioned La Strada, La Dolce Vita, and Eight and a Half, um, and on and on um, through mainly, you know, the 60s and the 70s. But he- was making movies all the way until 1990 and he died in 1993 and yeah i maybe maybe amarcord would be the amarcord or Lestrada might be the next one to uh yeah. to explore after this for me so you've mentioned three of the four that he won best foreign film oscars for the other being night of cambria so we've mentioned that sight and sound poll a uh, number of times and he's always you know in the director's poll like in in the top three or the top 10, no matter when it is. So we definitely have some work to do here, Josh. Yeah, he was nominated for 16 Oscars and won four of those, as you mentioned, um, as well as an honorary Oscar later in his career. So huge figure. And Alberto Sordi won seven uh, Davide Donatello Awards, the uh, best actor in Italy. Yeah, he was definitely, as we said, the biggest Italian star in this film. And and these guys all, I mean, or at least most of them were very prolific actors in in Italy. Let me jump in there, Josh. They all worked with like big major directors. Like I keep noting like Antonioni and Visconti and uh, Joseph Mankiewicz. Like they all worked with all these big, huge directors other than uh, Ricardo, who was uh, Fellini's younger brother, who went on to a career as a documentarian. Yeah, he he has some acting credits, but certainly not the career of the others. I I did I feel like we should mention uh, Franco Interlenghi, Franco Fabrizi, and Leopoldo Trieste are the three other actors who played uh, the Vitelloni along with Alberto Sordi and Riccardo Fellini. So um, all prolific actors. Um, and Leonora Ruffo, who played Sandra, went on to do these. Interesting things, the photo comics, which are basically like comic books, except you don't draw the comics, you shoot photos to tell the story. And then she was in a lot of like sword and sandal adventure films. Oh, all right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think later Fellini films have, you know, people like Marcello Mastrioni, who we know in the U.S. far more than we know these guys. 
but uh, all of them very successful beyond this film. And as far as we know, none of them other than Barova dated a Nazi. Although I feel like if you lived in Italy in the 1940s, you dated a Nazi. <laughs> a fascist, at least, a fascist, right? Right, so, yeah. exactly. That's, the, that's... The, the, the brown shirts, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. in Italy at that time. Yeah, that's what was going on there. So, See, Josh, I might be a Vitaloni, but I know my history. You do. You do indeed. <laughs> and that is important here when we're talking about the 1950s. So uh, anything else on the legacy of this film that you want to talk about? Uh, I think we covered this one, Josh. I think we're we're good. We've done it. We did the damn thing. We did. And I'm I'm happy that we got a movie that you enjoyed. Maybe we can keep that going <laughs> as we move on. We'll see. But that is Evie Deloney, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Uh, give us a shout on the social media and online. Yeah, you lazy bums. You're on the couch like Vita Loney all the time. Get on your phone and look us up. AwesomeMovieYear.com. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm still Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on all the socials. You can also find me at Eat This Comedy or The Trivia Party on Instagram. Uh, by the way, Dave, we did some uh, Zoom trivia and I have another gig coming up in Singapore. So let's get it together here for the kids in the popcorn and puzzle pieces group. Josh, I do have a website. Uh, go for Jason. It's the answer to the trivia question. What website shouldn't you go to? <laughs> <laughs> My website, joshbellhateseverything.com um, also could use a refresh, but I think I wrote something about a Fellini movie there once. So you could find that there, I suppose. Um, <laughs> More stuff at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook, at Signal Bleed on Twitter, and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. And at the time this episode goes up, uh, my new album, More Content, will have just come out. So go check that out on all the streaming services. And I give Dave a lot of crap, but congratulations, man. You are uh, quite prolific uh, with your music and you're producing, and that's great that you're putting out content. Well, thank you, Jason. <laughs> content is what uh, the world is all about right yes, now, Yes, right? lots and lots of content. More of it. See, see, even when I'm like being sincere, Josh, you still undercut me. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I think, I think I'm, what I'm saying is that Dave's album title is clever because it is uh, playing on the lingo of today and the, the commodification of art that mm -hmm. we have going on right that's now. That's right. Mm. Yeah. Get the NFT of it. Yes. <laughs> I looked up how to so, do it as a joke, but I luckily couldn't figure it out. I, I think that was smart to leave that alone. Dave. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, Jason, what content do we have in our next episode? Josh, it's a content piece uh, that was voted best picture of 1953. Not best content of 1953? Best pictural of content contenting picture the movie is the best film according to the oscars of 1953 it's got frank sinatra it's got ernest borgnine it's called from here to eternity so tune in next time for from here to eternity and thanks for listening to awesome movie year thank you for listening to awesome movie year make sure to follow awesome movie year on facebook at awesome movie pod on twitter and at awesome movie year on instagram and if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.